The book is called Fortune, How Race Broke My Family and the World and How to Repair It All. Tell me about the title. What led you to the title? Well, Fortune traces those 10 generations and my family's story demonstrates how America is an unbroken thread of white supremacist and white nationalist policies crafted to do one thing, to establish, to entrench, and to protect white male power. For example, Fortune, that seven times great grandmother, she absorbed the wrath of those very first race laws. She, they, were, they were crafted to deal with the perceived problem of mixed race children in Maryland. There were like 600 mixed race children born in Maryland in the colonial era. Um, and they were in Maryland and Delaware, and all of them traced to white women. So the problem they were solving for was white women marrying and, um, and having children with enslaved black men. So those planter class legislators said, we can't have this. So they legislated that white women would be enslaved if they married an, uh, an enslaved black man. They'd be enslaved themselves and their children would be enslaved in perpetuity. But by the time Fortune stood before a court in 1705, the laws had morphed. They had, they had pulled back that whole white women slave thing. And instead, they decided that the punishment would come would still come, but would come in the form of indenture if the woman was white. Yo, 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 fam. Continuing on with Black History Month, you know where you love her. The great Lisa Sharon Harper is on with us this week on Profane Faith. And now I guess he feels a little bit emboldened. He must be careful with what he says. I think we've got to see that a riot is the language of the unheard. Uh, racism is essentially a white problem. For you to understand what racism is about, you're going to be so uncomfortable. As Christians, we love the homosexual and the transgender. Homosexuality is sin. You know, everybody's like, you taught that from school, everywhere, big business, you want to be successful, you want to be like Trump, gimme, 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 push, 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 step, 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 crush, crush, crush. This is Profane Faith, a podcast that engages faith on the margins, faith that has been labeled profane, nonconformist, and or out there. We'll be exploring the intersections of the sacred, secular, and profane to find God. We won't be trying to answer difficult questions. Rather, we'll be engaging them and asking better ones regarding faith, race, gender, and religion. I'm your host, Daniel White Hodge. All right, all right, all right. Yes, indeedy. I'm here and back. That's right. Hopefully y'all are doing all right out there in uh, podcast land. Um, I know uh, here in the shy of Cago, you know, it's, uh, you know, it's, we're, we're showing signs of things warming up, but uh, it's still been pretty, pretty cold. Well, at least I would say probably cold for a large part of the country. And for us, it's just been cool. Um, Been a few nights in the single digits, you know, but uh, you know, as a Midwesterner, right? Uh, I am um, talking about the weather, uh, as always, you know, in all my weather apps. I have a whole folder on my phone dedicated to weather apps, right? And checking them all continuously. <laughs> uh, but anyways, fam, hope you're doing good. Hope you're enjoying Black History Month. Um, what are you learning about? Who are you reading? Um, who are you taking in? Uh, there's a lot of stuff out there, you know, just... 
Uh, in trying to learn what uh, African Americans uh, have contributed to this country, um, and you know, it, there's so much that gets um, overlooked and not told in stories. So I hope you are going out and uh, checking in on some folks and uh, reading some folks and learning some more about uh, the contribution that blacks have had uh, in this country. I know uh, this last uh, was it last week actually marked my 10 years uh, at the current organization that I'm at. And uh, it's kind of a trip. It's kind of a trip because uh, that the time didn't even feel like that. I it felt it still feels like, oh, no, I got, you know, three or four years before I even, you know, get to 10 years. But here I am 10 years at the current organization, uh, 21, 20, almost 22 years in the academy. Uh, those are just hard to believe things. I've been teaching uh, for about that long as well. Um, just been in the classroom and, um, you know, trying to put them lessons out there. Um, but again, you know, I um, and I think, you know, if you listen to this podcast, you already know I'm I, I, I definitely love the, the structure and ideology around Afro pessimism and, uh, you know, uh, how that connects. I, I, I like that. Um, and at the same time, I find hope and beauty in smaller things. Right. Family. Right. I've talked a lot about that. My daughter, um, you know, snow blowing. <laughs> right. Uh, all those things uh, help provide just a little uh, space and continuity uh, for life. But, um, you know, uh, in this in, in these in this day and age. Right. It's it's difficult to kind of wrap you know, our heads around, for example, you know, the the uh, the madness that's going on out in Ukraine, or at least the alleged madness. Um, I don't believe either one of these countries. I don't believe Russia and I damn sure don't believe what our government say is going on over there. Um, you know, and and, and, and and what gets me is, is you know, the, the, the people who really need to fight it out aren't going to be fighting. They're going to be sending uh, poor middle class, lower middle class people to fight these wars, which has kind of been the thing. Uh, for a long time, you know, people who join the military and whatnot, uh, and they'll be fighting a war that they're, they're really not even sure they're supposed to be fighting, right? Because, um, yeah, and, and, that, and that's a whole, you know, series in and of itself, just looking at violence and war and, you know, the justification, you know, of killing all kinds of people. And then, you know, what happens once that Pandora's box is opened, you know, all the things that come with that, right? Rape, pillaging, um, brutal killings, brutal slayings, um, the dehumanization of, you know, whatever group is on the bottom of that, um, war is never pretty. Um, it never is. I, you know, and, 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 and I'm, I'm always curious to know just even some of the, uh, you know, if we think about it theologically, like what is, what does that look like? Um, you know, biblically, uh, when you talk about war in heaven, um, is it different? Was it different from this, this war? Was it different, uh, from the way we look at things? Doesn't, doesn't sound like it doesn't sound like it by a lot of the interpretations. Um, and, uh, it doesn't, doesn't sound like it was that much different. So I, I, you know, when we think about, you know, two groups getting ready to, to battle, right. You've, you've exhausted, or at least we would hope people have exhausted all other means of, 
communication and negotiations, right? I mean, you think about World War II, and I've said this before, um, you know, the last quote unquote just war, um, the last, really the last war ever declared, at least here uh, at the uh, date and showing listening of this podcast here in the year of our Lord 20 and 22, uh, there has not been another declared war. Now, we all know, right, that semantics, because we've had plenty of conflict and wars, uh, you know, dating back for the last 75 years. Um, so, you know, these are just some of the things that I think about, right? And, you know, and just how we view um, this God. And hopefully you had, I uh, got some great feedback uh, last week on uh, Brother Watkins, Sean Watkins' uh, podcast. If you haven't heard it, whoo, that brother. What I love about Sean is his unrelenting spirit uh, to keep it real <laughs> and to speak in plain English, but yet so wise and so eloquently. And I've always appreciated that about him. Um, you know, it's just one of those, those relationships that have formed over the last two decades of me teaching, right? He took a class of mine and we just became friends. Uh, the only problem with all that is that he, that we don't live closer to each other. Um, so yeah, man, as you haven't heard it, you can go back and check that out because uh, that, you know, continue our series about God is not love. I highly recommend listening to the last two uh, uh, entries of that uh, with Dominique Robinson and um, Sean Watkins. Uh, some good uh, thought process there as we think about, you know, just God theologically, uh, the cosmos. Um, like I said, I don't, you know, doubt that there is something greater out there beyond us. You think about, you know, what uh, quantum theory and, and uh, you know, astrophysics brings to the table and just the way the human body is created. Right. I mean, you think about just how our body, I mean, even the amount of years that we've been around, it'd be difficult to say that, you know, that was just a random act, you know, that came together. So I don't believe that we were just made by accident or we just came into life by accident. But I don't believe the narratives that we have been constructed around God, um, and, you know, to this day, especially as we think about, you know, Western U.S. Uh, evangelicalism, white evangelicalism um, and what that has done you know, to the image of God and to kind of the the worldview of God. I think God is much bigger than what we have made God out to be. And I've said that over. I won't have to repeat it. But, you know, if this is maybe your first time checking out Profane Phase, you're like, what the hell is he talking about? Uh, plenty of other episodes in the back. Uh, so you can go check those out. Always online, always available, right? Portable on demand. Um, so, yeah, I, you know, and so I think about black history and I think about just the plight of black Americans and, you know, what that looks. And, and, and I mean that in the literal sense, racially presenting as black. Because uh, as y'all know, I'm part, you know, African-American and Mexican-American. Uh, so I do possess, you know, a bi-ethnicity, but, you know, I identify as black racially. Um, so those are some areas and those are some things that I think, uh, you know, particularly when you think, of, think about just what it means to be, um, you know, I like Malcolm X's, you know, position when he said, you know, you... <laughs> you put a knife in somebody's back and then you take it halfway out. That's not progress. You know, uh, even if you, you know, take it out and, uh, you know, you, that's still not progress, right? You know, you guys, not until that wound begins to heal and, and you begin to, you know, heal that wound that you begin to, um, you know, see some, some progress, right? Um, and the U S is still denying that the knife is even in there to begin with. Right? <laughs> so, um, yeah, I don't I don't I don't see much progress. And especially over the last few years uh, of where we've been, um, we, you know, we've had a a, a regression um, and a loss of black civil rights. 
black, you know, and just the way we interpret black life in general. I mean, think about Potter, right? The officer who shot, uh, was it Dante, right? So difficult to keep up with everyone. But she, you know, she was the one who, uh, if you remember, was said she was reaching for a taser, but she grabbed her gun instead. Like, oh, what kind of bullshit is that? But nevertheless, right? She, you know, that's what she said. And, um, you know, she shot the brother and killed him. And, um, you know, what did she get? Like two years <laughs> in prison? She'll be eligible for parole, right? In 16 months. Um, uh, who was it? The guy who killed Laquan McDonald. Um, he's getting out, right? He only served, what, about 18 months? 19 months, almost two, well, maybe a little over two years. Um, you think about some of these other black folks who, uh, you know, selling a nickel bag of weed, uh, some crack, and them niggas is looking at 25, 30 years, you know, not without even any fucking parole. Um, you know, you think about enhancement laws and what those things have done. The shit just gets unnerving, um, it, you know, after a while. Um, and, it, you know, it's... You know, but as black folk, we've endured so much, right? It's like, it's always funny to me that, you know, when white folks say they've endured, you know, these these atrocities, right? And particularly cishet white men, they don't know how to handle, you know, uh, downtrodden. They don't know how to handle any form of oppression, right? And so what's their reaction, right? They're going to go grab a gun and, you know, begin with mass shootings, right? Um, and so that... That is something that I think about a lot um, and just the progress that, you know, quote unquote, really, quote unquote, uh, that we've made in this country, you know, isn't much. Um, so I said, you know what, let me reach out to my good friend, colleague. Uh, I really see Lisa as a uh, sister and uh, I have always appreciated her perspective and always appreciated what she has brought to the table, she has been through so much. I think we met ooh, way back in the day, um, back when I was in L.A. And um, I'm in fact, a matter of fact, I think it was on a screening uh, during Black History Month. I believe Craig Detweiler, who's also been on the show, a mentor, a friend of mine, uh, invited me. He was like, hey, we're doing this, you know, this thing on race and everything on do the right thing. Um, I'd love for you to be on this panel and talk a little bit about it. So, yeah, I remember that, that's where I met Lisa. She was with, I believe, InterVarsity at the time, and then she went on to Sojourners. But she's doing great things now, and I've just appreciated her perspective. So I reached out. We finally landed on our date and recorded this, and I was like, man, I'm going to get this out. Plus, she's got a new book out, so we're going to be promoting that. I'm going to let her explain that. Um, so support your sister. Support your sister doing amazing work, doing work uh, looking at her own history and family lineage. Uh, that stuff is, is deep. As you already know, I've, you know, talked about that a lot, uh, on this show as well. Um, from Ferguson to New York and from Germany and South Africa to Australia and Brazil, Lisa, you know, she leads trainings that increase clergy and community leaders capacity to organize people of faith toward a just world. I mean, much love to that and much respect to that. I mean, come on. She's a prolific speaker, writer, activist. Uh, Lisa's the founder and president of FreedomRoad.us. Um, it's a consulting group uh, dedicated to shrinking the narrative gap in our nation by designing forums and experiences that bring common understanding, common commitment, and common action. Uh, if you haven't seen that, as always, or if you haven't even read about that, if you didn't know what Lisa was doing, you know, go to whitehodgepodcast.com, check out Profane Faith, and as always, check out the show notes. Check them out. That's what they're there for. Um, 
Miss Harper, she is the author of a lot of different books. Uh, was it the one that, including Evangelical Does Not Equal Republican or Democrat? This was the, uh, the new press back in 2008. Left, Right, and Christ, Evangelical Faith and Politics. This was by Elevate in 2011. Uh, a good one, a good reader, if you haven't read it, uh, is Forgive Us, Confessions of a Compromised Faith by Zondervan. Man, that damn this was in 2014 i'm surprised zonovan even published that they probably discontinued that shit you know like after the next year man no one's zonovan man yeah i'm throwing shade shit these goddamn white christian publishers but anyways let me get back because that one was critically acclaimed and that one uh, that one did well so if you haven't that's a, and that's a good a, a good read though that's no knock on on the the content uh just the publisher uh but yeah forgive us um and then uh she, she had the, the acclaimed book of hers the very good gospel how everything wrong can be made right that's by waterbrook a division of penguin come on now you know you got big things going on that was in 2016 uh the very good gospel was recognized as 2016 book of the year by inglewood um books uh, she's been a columnist at Sojourners Magazine uh, and at Auburn Theological Seminary. She's a senior fellow. Uh, she's also appeared on TV One, Fox News, right? Come on. Uh, NPR, Al Jazeera America. Her writings also featured on the CNN Belief blog, the National Civic Review, Sojourners, the Huffington Post, Relevant Magazine, Essence Magazine. Yo, telling you, man, Lisa be putting it down. And I think for me, it, Lisa gives that hope of 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 a movement pushing forward uh and i love the conversation we had here in regards to life blackness uh her own journey to seek her uh heritage and her um you know her her life history right i think that's important that all of us do that um and so she got this new book and so uh, again i'm gonna let her promote that uh but check it out whitehodgepodcast.com profane faith show notes all the links will be there uh buy the book check it out support her um she's doing amazing work um and she's just she's been all over the place doing amazing things and stuff and so i was thankful to to finally get her on the show enjoy this conversation and continue to enjoy black history month fam all right peace But you sound good on this end, if you can hear me. Thank you. I can. And so I'm ready to dive in now, bro. Yeah, no, it's all good. It's all good. Yeah. Um, it is all good. Well, I mean, yeah, fill us in on what's been happening since I think the last time we talked was a few years back. You were just starting uh, your business on your own. You was, you were out in terms of out from underneath being a, <laughs> under an organization and, and uh, mm -hmm. that kind of hierarchy and patriarchy and whatnot. Um, <laughs> folks loved your whole conversation around, um, you know, like on abortion and the history of that. I think that was mm -hmm. awesome. Um, and I know you got a new book coming out, but there's been so much. I mean, we're in the middle of a pandemic that's raging. Um, we got the midterm elections coming up. Um, mm -hmm. there's all kind of information on COVID vaccines and it seems like the CDC is just saying, Hey, y'all do you, it doesn't matter anymore. You know, Fauci's like, Oh ah. no, 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 that's not the message. No. <laughs> so I just, what's been going on? What's been happening? Where are you at? What, what are you, what are you seeing on your end of things? Uh, I love your Instagram posts and stuff. I've kind of made, made a shift away from online uh, stuff. So I, I keep Instagram just to post memes, but I love your feed. And I was like, I got to reach out to Lisa. So thank you for responding and coming back. 
Thank you so much. And if anybody else who's listening wants to follow on Instagram, please do. Lisa S. Harper. Yes. Um, I I have had, my my gosh, it's now we're in the fifth year of Freedom Road existing. Mm. Um, I can't even believe it's been that long. It has been a journey and it doesn't feel like, it feels like we started maybe a couple years ago. Okay. But it's been five years now. And so we've held, we've held our own out there and not as a nonprofit. We are for profit. Um, We're a consulting group. Okay. And now we're working with, um, with groups that are, um, really, really, uh, they are incredibly significant um, on on the stage of those who are pushing for just just systems and policies, but they themselves are actually asking the question, how do we do this in a more just way? And so we've been working for two years now with Friends for Friends um, Committee on National Legislation, FCNL, that's the Quakers um, uh, on the Hill and working with them to make their organization um, ready to accept and to be accepted um, and not just be accepted, but to be um, excellent at what Mm -hmm. they do in the new America, in the new demographic that's coming um, in 2035, um, literally um, less than less than 20 years from now, 2045. So. When we look at um, uh, the Carter Center is another one of our partners. And okay. so we're working with them in order to help them to move into truth telling um, in the area of race, in the arena of race, both in, in Georgia, but also nationally. It's really exciting work going on there. Um, and so that's what we do consulting, but also pilgrimages. Um, the bottom line is Freedom Road is really all about reconciling narrative. It's all about bridging the gap between our narratives, that gap that keeps us having to come back and retread the same ground every generation. Right. Um, you know, I mean, er, every generation, <laughs> you know, every generation. And we have to, we're going to have to tread that ground. And like the, the Jim Crow, you know, and Jim Crow for my great, great grandmother was the end of reconstruction. And then for my grandmother, it was, you know, it was the peonage and lynching. And then for my mom, um, it was, you know, the push. She actually was the, the generation that pushed against that. She was in SNCC. And then with us, it's mass incarceration. I mean, it's the same thing. Because we have two major competing narratives in our nation. The, the narratives that says America was great once when we were a white nation. And so that's where you get the white nationalists from. And then you have the narrative that says, no, we are, we have been striving to make a more perfect union. And that's the narrative that, that pushed us um, into the civil war, quite honestly, or or actually to respond to the secession of South Carolina um, with saying, no, we go in the war because we are still about being the union. We are one nation and we are about making a more perfect union. It's what, it's what, catalyzed the abolitionist movement. It's what catalyzed the suffragist movement. It's what powered the civil rights movement and every movement after that. It is the call to make a more perfect union. So um, so those are the two major convening narratives. Mm. And so Freedom Road exists to, to bridge the gap between our narratives so that we can actually begin to make some headway. Um, and so we do that through pilgrimage. Oh, there's my dog. That's again. all good. Hold on. All right. 
So I had to, I had to let my dog see that it was just grandmom. (laughs) (laughs) Otherwise she was going to bark here forever. Right. Oh, I know. Hey, it's, 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 that's it. (laughs) Yeah. Is it you'll, and every now and then when I'm recording, y'all, you'll actually hear him. I do my best to try to, you know, cancel out the noise, but I'm like, yeah, you just gonna hear him sometimes when out there, the mailman coming through and this is like, Hey, oh my, exactly. (laughs) You can't control it. FedEx is here. Oh my God. Right. And then, then (laughs) we actually have a note on our doorbell that says please don't ring the doorbell like when yeah. packages are dropped hey nobody pays attention to that man. So as soon as they drop the package off ding dong and everybody goes crazy so it is all good it is all good it's funny um the world has changed since covid everybody's got a dog or a cat or some or a parrot i mean somebody's everybody's got a pet now and so yes it's a whole nother um uh, realm of etiquette that we need to, you know, uh, race to match our, our situation, you know, like to, to deal with our, our current situation. Anyway, um, all that to say that Freedom Road is is moving and we are moving in order to try to, we're moving in the work of, um, of helping people who are doing justice do it in a more just way. And, um, and helping America to possibly bridge this gulf um, between our narratives. So that's actually why I wrote Fortune. Okay. It's, I mean, it really is, you know, I did 30 years of, of family research not to write a book, just to know who who the heck am I, right? Right, right. And in the midst, though, of doing this research, I started realizing, wow, like there's a lot of American history hmm. this is coming up against. And to find American history, literally to discover American history in the course of doing genealogy work, doing work to uncover an African-American story um, is valuable. It's valuable in this context because it helps all of us to understand that, first of all, our ancestors lived this history and their their interaction with it can give us a window through which we can understand how these policies and things that happened impacted people on the ground. Hmm. That's also part of the story. And very, very rarely is it the case that you have history told through the eyes, through the lens of ones who were oppressed and especially black women. Hmm. So I thought this is really, really invaluable. Um, So that's why I wrote Fortune was to help, to try to help to, to shrink that narrative gap in America. All right, I, this is good. I have so many questions. This is this is awesome. Um, and I want to get to Fortune because, uh, and I'll confess, I have not got a copy yet of that, and so I, no! I need to I need to I need, oh, to, no. I need to read that. And I but I want to ask you more about that. Definitely the very good gospel, amazing book. Uh, definitely mm-hmm. in the show notes. Uh, I you know I have everybody like it's amazing people I can tell like you know you go read this and stuff and even try to assign it. I think our school had it um as a, a read. We have a we usually have a every semester we have a kind of a a university-wide reading, so I believe it made it. I can't remember oh. when this the the pandemic has is made every time like either stand still or rush forward. Mm-hmm. So, because that, mm-hmm. that was going to be my next question was like, how have you navigated this this time? I mean, the pandemic started under mm-hmm. the Trump era. We're now mm-hmm. you know two years in uh, under mm-hmm. a different presidency, but mm-hmm. it seems like we're kind of still in some interesting spots with that. How have you navigated that? How are you um, even just dealing with some of the, the the madness that's that's happening, right? With people who don't want to wear masks, or and, and and this isn't even like white folks. Like this is I'm talking about like black folks who are just like I ain't gonna wear no mask. This this pandemic is ain't real. I ain't gonna get the vaccine. This so how have you been engaging with that? Yeah, well, 
You're you're exactly right. We started this. We had a year under Trump um, with this pandemic, and that year was a living hell, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. I mean, oh, yeah. we lost so many of our people, in particular, people of African descent and Latinos as as also well. Um, Native Americans to this pandemic because of, I believe, targeted um, attempted genocide, um, you know, a de facto genocide through through COVID-19. And that was through neglect. It was basically a de facto genocide, um, as in we won't give you PPP. We won't tell you what we know about the, we won't even tell you it's really an issue um, until we have to. And then we're gonna, once we know, we're gonna force you to go to work without protection. Right. um, And call you essential workers to make you feel good as you're dying. And so that was, that was our first year of this. The ironic thing about that now is that we did eventually get the get the message, and now, unlike in the first year of of the pandemic, now people of African descent and Latinos, um, Native Americans, are our our um, hospitalization and death rate is equal to that of people of European descent in America, hmm. and so it's not. It's actually we we got the message, and we actually you know we have been we've been masking up by and large, um, but now the irony is that people of European descent who have who have who were Trumpers um, have refused to move from Trump's early message. It's not even his current message. He's now saying mask up. <laughs> but you know why he's doing that? Because he's losing voters. He's losing his voters because his voters are dying. His voting base is dying because they followed him. They followed him literally off a cliff. Um, so what is what 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 has been my journey here? It's been a journey really of um, digging deep. I mean deep. For the first year, I um, I decided to make this my year of healing. And instead, and I tend to do that when I get into crisis. I'm like, let's actually leverage this crisis to make this the best thing that ever happened. Not to me, or not not to everybody, mm-hmm. but rather the the I make I make choices in the midst of that where I can grow and develop. Maybe leverage this horrible moment for something that can be redemptive. Um, and so, what is um, what what was you know, the time of cloister for many people actually ended up being a time of almost like a cocoon for me. And so I got, I went, to, I started doing therapy. Mm-hmm. I did, I didn't just have one therapist. I had two. <laughs> yeah, come on, come on. <laughs> for a year, I really did for well, pretty yeah. much a year. I had two therapists and um, one was for the head and one was for the body. And so, you know, one was somatic therapist. So I never yes. even heard of that before. Yes. So I started doing somatic therapy. In other words, to understand how the body is always talking to us and telling us what mm. it needs, telling us the healing that it needs, telling us where it's not just holding tension, but holding trauma and how to then speak to and care for those parts of the body um, and and therefore care for ourselves. So wow. I started that work um, during the pandemic and, and during the pandemic that led me to um, eating better, you know? And so I literally lost 60 pounds in the course of the, of the first Look year and you. a half. All right. All yeah, right. Yeah, Come, on. Brother, yeah. Come on. Come on. Lisa Jared <laughs> out, right? So That's I said, right. you know, and, and I'll tell you what, like the, the turning point for me, and I can say this to you because you're my brother, right? So turning point for me was when I was, I had gone up to um, to Seattle just 
just before everything locked down. Mm-hmm. And I was up there speaking um, for a church, for a couple of churches. And I went to do an event and our sister, Brenda Salter McNeil came yeah. up to me and, you know, she was there and I was so excited. She was, she's one of my mentors, longtime mentors since the mid nineties. And, wow. um, you know, and so she came up to me and she said, Lisa, this is not your body. Whoa. Yes. Whoa. She so enough told me the truth. Whoa. <laughs> I mean, and, and I knew I was at the very top weight I had ever been. And I and I I knew that I was pushing death. Like I really could have died. I had a couple of times where my heart felt like, you know, the pressure. And I mm-hmm, or one time mm-hmm. on a plane where I was like, oh my God, like what's happening to me? And and then it was okay. You know, I had I had all this stuff happening in the background while I was going all over the place, um, you know, speaking, but knowing that my body wasn't well. So when she said that, that was my turning point. And wow. I said, you know what? Um, this has got to stop. I'm I'm done with this. And so, so that's when I said, okay, somatic therapy, here you come. Wow. And that's when, you know, the head therapy came. Yeah. And I and I really have, I have grown leaps and bounds. And in the middle of that, um, I also started writing fortune. <laughs> and I don't, I, like I really it. don't mean to make these like, you know, pivots to fortune. I no. really don't. It, it no, really please. is a part of that year. Um, in the middle of that, I literally started to write the book. Um, and because uh, we we got the contract with Brazos, and and then the, it was August of 2020. Um, I'm writing the first, the second chapter. I'd already written the first chapter, or first draft of it anyway, for the proposal. So I dive into the second chapter, which is on the Lawrence line of my family, which is the line that um, that eventually made its way to Philadelphia and comes from Kentucky. And um, there's, there is oral history there of having connection to either Cherokees or Chickasaws or both and all of that, right? So I start in on that, that part of the family. And I knew that my second great-grandfather, Hi- or no, my great-grandfather, not second, my great-grandfather Hiram Lawrence owned a whole block of land, wow. like literally a block of homes wow. in the Elmwood section of Philadelphia. And he had moved from Indiana to Philadelphia um, and, and he, he owned that block. And I mean, it was like a marshy area, all black area. And then in the 1950s, mid 1950s, I believe, or in the late 1950s, he was forced to sell that whole block of homes by way of eminent domain to the city for pennies on the dollar. And he was with that block of property only having been paid pennies on the dollar, he was able to set up his wife um, and not just his, you know, buy a home, one home in South South Philly, where I am now. And I'm here now. I, I was in DC at the time of starting this, but I'm here because when I went to go research, where is Elmwood? I ended up on a Zillow map. <laughs> I showed up, I showed up did. I was like, oh, I found it. There it is. But what are all these numbers, you know? And then I realized, oh my gosh, these numbers—they're they're homeowner price numbers. And I said, oh my god, this is affordable because I'm not used to that. I was in D.C. before that, New York before that, L.A. Like I'm used to really high-priced homes. Yeah, not that I pay for. I've, I've never ha- I never owned my home own home before. I've only been in apartments. So, but I had been thinking I want to move, and I you know, and I thought, well, let me just see if there's a house maybe for sale on my grandmother's old block in South Philly. And lo and behold, her house was for sale. I was like, what? Now we lost my grandmother's house um, back in 2014. 
Oh. Because of some, some, you know, basically neglect, the family member never paid the taxes on it and we won't go into that. Oh. So we lost it in 2004. Yes, oh. it was horrible. It was our legacy and right. it was lost. We were like, no. So now I see that it's it's like up for sale. I'm like, mom, mom, grandma's house is up for sale. She said, snag it. Wow, that's <laughs> so, a trip. It is, right? So I call wow. a real estate agent and, you know, and he he's, he's really great. Travis um, Skidmore, by the way, for anybody who's looking for a home in Philadelphia, you got to call Travis Skidmore. Okay. Look for him. The brother is good. Okay. Um, white guy who is a brother. Um, and so he, he says... Um, He's like, okay, I can go over and like and do a walkthrough because you know it's COVID, right? So everybody's on lockdown. Mm -hmm. So he has me on Facetime. So, um, so he goes over to walk through my grandmother's house on Facetime, and he gets there, Whoa. and he says, "I can't show you the house because there are squatters there." And I was like, "No, right?" So, no. so okay, okay. So, but you know, I still felt called. Mm -hmm. I mean, I've been literally drawn yeah. to this neighborhood. Like yeah. I felt the ancestors calling Come me. On. I really did. Come on. And I did not know why. I had no intention, none yeah. of moving to Philadelphia. Absolutely no intention of moving back. I lived here from one to 10 years old and I just didn't intend on moving back. But the ancestors called me back, brother. So I kept wow. looking and I found the house that we're in one block from where my grandmother lived. Two blocks from yeah. where my great grand, for, yeah. two blocks from where two separate great grandmothers lived, Damn. and one block from where my mom went to grade school. I mean, so I am in. My family was in this neighborhood for seventy years, and I'm back. Wow! And this neighborhood since then, since they, and this is all in chapter ten of actually a fortune, but um, since they were here, there was a respite, a, a, a part where they uh -huh. weren't here because. Um, of death in the family and then people moving moving out. But in that time between them and me, the city and in particular this area went through hell. It was a war zone. Hmm. It was the drug wars. It was um, it was it was drugs being pumped into this community um, over the 70s, 80s and 90s. And as a result of drugs being pumped into the community in order to trump up um, a drug war that Nixon launched admittedly by his legislative director to have the pretense to go in and break up black communities and hippies, what he said, hippies and black communities, his two political foes. And Reagan carrying that forward into the 80s and 90s um, or 80s and then of course Bush in the 90s. Mm -hmm. what, you, what you see is you see this neighborhood and the black men and, and women in, in it being targeted. Um, they were the targets of warfare. My uncle plopped dead in his bedroom from a heroin overdose in the 1970s. Oh. My grandmother, oh. Willa, um, was beaten to death by a crack addict who was trying to bilk her for everything she had. She was she was suffering from Alzheimer's at the time. Yes, that's the cost. You see, that's the cost of the oppressive wow. systems and structures and laws and policies that we have enacted on our city. And after they killed all of our people off and are in this neighborhood called Point Breeze was a war. It was basically a burned out, bombed out war zone, literally houses having no windows or doors, like people just not even there anymore, except for those who could hang on the remnant. Um, then of course, then you get 
the builders and the and the whispers of urban renewal, right? Mm. Which basically means getting black people out, bringing exactly. in Starbucks, bringing in Whole yep. Foods, bringing in, um, you know, pet shops and lattes. And that's where we are now. And that is what led me to move back. I said, we have to reclaim our land. Wow. So that's why I'm here. Lisa, that is... <laughs> Seriously, I'm seeing as you're talking, I'm seeing a movie like going through this. Like I visually when I see that hear stuff, I have to visually for it to be imprinted and stuff, man. This is this is amazing. This is crazy. How, I mean, what did you have to do to find how did you do, how deep and far did you have to go to get this research on your family? I mean, the fact that you're I, and now is this place that you're in right now that I'm looking at? This is this is the house. This is the house. This is the house. It's one block from my mom where she grew up and and one block from her grade school and two blocks from two separate grandparent great grandparents and um it's the history it's it's the, it's the land and I'll tell you what there really is relationship to homeland when I came back here um you know it's my block um, is is a beautiful block. Immediately, I began to to get to know my neighbors. I know the, all their names. I know some of their stories. Um, we watch out for each other. We look out for each other. Um, even the even the young men who and there some of them are not young who sit on the block and sell drugs on the corner. <laughs> like they sell <laughs> pot. Nothing nothing more than pot. But yeah. you know they're 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 selling pot on the corner and they have a big business going on out there. Like they are they are. The guardians of the block like they literally will watch out for us if somebody does something to our car we will know about it if somebody steals something from our porch they will get them like it's kind of right. cool it's kind right. of amazing right so so i'll tell you it took 30 years to research um I didn't start the research to write a book. I started the research to know myself. But in the course of it, um, you know, I really did begin to understand that my family was impacted and intersected with major, multiple major moments in American history. So the book um, traces those moments in American history through the framework and the lens of my own family story. Wow. That is, I mean, listening to that, and like you said, you know, this this drug war that, you mm -hmm. know, has been exposed more, right, over the last, you know, five, six years. Mm -hmm. Those of us who've lived it knew it, knew a lot of this stuff and having gone through the 80s and, you know, I my mom was addicted to crack and having to see mm -hmm. that and having to deal with that and family mm -hmm. members as well and just how mm -hmm. bad it hit particularly the black and brown communities, you know, during yes. that time, right? Yes. Um, you know, I still remember, you know, in the early 80s, right? People were, you know, talking about this new thing that, you know, was coming out on the block and they was like, oh, it's going to make cats a whole bunch of money and everything and just, yeah. and then listening and reading, you know, from the San Jose Mercury all the way up, you know, how the CIA was involved. I mean, so it's like, right. <laughs> these things, right, that are getting caught up and here it is, right, in the middle of this, right, you have this narrative, your family in, in this, that's, phenomenal phenomenal yeah. in, in a way that just it's just kind of like wow that's this is yeah well I mean you trace it back I me mean, my mom like my my my, my uncle who who died um in the 1970s you know he was singing doo-wop on the corners on these same corners mm. every corner had a doo-wop group you know in the 50s and 60s and those same young men were the ones dying of heroin overdoses because those drugs were pumped into our area for political reasons. Um, my mom was a part of SNCC because she joined the office, the Philadelphia branch when it opened up because it was just blocks from her home. Like mm. she literally 
was on a bus going north to, to, to sign up, really to register for a community college. And she saw the opening and job, like the job um, announcement on the SNCC door, SNCC office opening here soon on the bus line that is just literally two blocks over from where I live right now. Wow. And and she she jumped off the bus because she had been watching and waiting for an opportunity to join for, for years. And in 1966, she joined SNCC and actually started dating Stokely Carmichael too. So that's also what? in the book. Yes. <laughs> Good night. Yes. yes. And, you know, so then trace it back a little further and you get my grandma, um, you know, who uh, who was who really had to earn her keep um, in the South when her mother left um, South Carolina and took her lightest skin child in order to make a way for herself and, and to bring her up later when she had established herself in the North. And so. You know, her mother, Lizzie, was um, just, she was octoroon. She could pass for white. Um, and so she did. And she didn't, she didn't say I'm white. She just never said she was black. If you saw the movie Passing, it's a really great description. Yeah. It helped me to understand Lizzie even better. Wow. But Lizzie went north in the Great Migration because in the South, she was surrounded by the people who had enslaved her. Like she literally lived surrounded by the Ballard family, which had enslaved our family for I mean, for nearly a hundred years. And so, you know, she couldn't pass there. They knew, they knew who she was. So she went North and eventually did um, call for Willa and Charles and, um, and, uh, and, uh, and, and, but she had brought her, her lightest skin child, Martha and Martha, I think to, to the day she died really suffered from being disconnected from her family and suffered from, um, having to pass for all those years and she was just a child and she eventually drank herself to death oh. you know so um and and then leah who was the last adult enslaved woman in our family and the book uh, traces her story which we don't know a lot about mm -hmm. so in that we're really looking more at the context and also the place where she lived and i, I learned through that research about the laws that developed um after reconstruction actually um at, at the close of Reconstruction, South Carolina tried to re-establish re a slaveocracy through the 13th Amendment, the loophole in the 13th Amendment. And, um, and of course, we know the end of Reconstruction has brought peonage and all of that, but they also did something else you know you don't hear about very much. And I learned this actually by reading um, Isabella Wilker Isabel Wilkerson's book, Cast, where she says on one page, and it was the one page I needed, right? Um, <laughs> where she says that in South Carolina, um, after uh, Reconstruction, South, um, they passed laws that said the only jobs that people of African descent could fill, you could not be anything but these two things, a domestic worker or a farm worker in South Carolina. Wow. So, right? So, and why? Because those were the slave jobs. Like those were the jobs that they needed for slavery. They lost out of, when they lost slavery. So they were going to reinstitute slavery in that way. So that's what drove Lizzie to come North. When she lost everything else, she said, I'm going North um, and I'm going to make a better way. And I just think about that, the courage that it took oh. her to leave everything she had known right. and her family had known for multiple generations in order to make a way in a land that was not her own. And she did it. She did it. 
And, um, and she actually ended up becoming a, a, a healing force in this neighborhood and in the community where I am right now during the depression when she was here, um, you know, she had been found out by that time. She had been working as a waitress, um, you know, in, a, in the most, one of the most swanky um, hotels in Philadelphia, the Grand Hotel, and they didn't have black waitresses. And so she had, that's where she passed. But when she was found out, they put her back in the kitchen. So she became a renowned baker actually in, in Philadelphia. Um, the hotel scene and you know she brought home baked goods to feed her block you mm. know during the depression so people people ate wow. because my grandmother fed them that... my great grandmother fed them yeah <laughs> kind of, it's kind of awesome really to think about that and and to know that it, it really did happen and and so, you know, and, and of course, this all goes back to the first ancestor that um, was born on this soil, Fortune, mm. who the book is named after. Wow. And Fortune was born in 1687 in Maryland. <sighs> and she was born to Maudlin McGee, who was an Ulster Scott woman, and Sambo Game, Um who was an African man, most likely from Senegal, the place where Senegal, Mali, and Guinea meet, and um, on the eastern, southeastern edge of Senegal. He, his ship, I found the ship that he came over in because there wow. are very few that are possible. Actually, there's only one that's possible in the time that he was alive and, and by, by the time we know he was here. Um, and that ship, uh, uh, came in 1686. And so sometime between 1686 and 1687, um, Sambo and Maudlin met, fell in love and had a child. And it was an affair because she was already married and their child they named Fortune. And because Fortune was born of a white woman and a black man at the exact time when the first race laws were being established in Maryland, her... Um, her mother, her white mother, saved her from being enslaved. She could only be indentured according to the law, but she could be indentured and she could be indentured for 31 years because her father was black. So if her father was white, then she would be indentured for 21 years. So there in those first laws, you see the privilege of whiteness. I mean, just like in base relief, right? So right. boom, there it is, right. there it is. Those are the roots of it. And um, and in our DNA, in my blood, in my family story, you see the history of race in America. Wow. Wow, 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 Lisa. <laughs> That's that what is, I said. Yes, yeah. I mean, you said it, right? That is the, right, the history of race in America. You're right. I mean, to be able to trace that back and have mm -hmm. such accurate details. That's I'm mm -hmm. I'm currently in the in the process of trying to figure that out. I mean, unfortunately, mm -hmm. I haven't seen my dad since 1982, so I have no idea like what's mm -hmm. on that side of the family. Like, you know, mm -hmm. and being part Mexican, it's like, yeah, I can trace my lineage back and we can mm -hmm. go back into Mexico and stuff, but the African American heritage side of me just it, it mm -hmm. ends at 82. That's it. Um, wow. And so I'm trying to figure that out right now, and you know. Oh, brother, I can help you. 
Oh. I would be so happy to help. I'm serious. I'd be happy to help you. Oh, don't and, tempt me now. I've, I've become, I have, <laughs> I, I help, I have helped many people and I, I, it's not that hard once you know what you're looking for. And, and also if you do DNA, that's one thing I really want to say here is that um, some of us are skittish about DNA. I say, I, you know, I'm, forget I, it. Yeah, that's me. Don't, don't be skittish about DNA. The okay. reality is, is that, look, if they're going to do something, they're going to do it. They're going to find a way. And they probably already have your DNA from like medical <laughs> specimens that you've given <laughs> pee in a cup. You know what I mean? Like that's already yeah. going to give them what they need. So don't worry about it. Okay. What you need, uh -huh. what you need is you need to be able to connect your story. So go ahead, do AfricanAncestry.com. That will help you to know what tribe your people are from. When I got my certificates back in the mail from AfricanAncestry.com uh -huh. and I saw that my people are Hausa and Yoruba. Um, that's my mother's, 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 mother's going back a thousand years. They were Hausa and Yoruba. Wow. In Nigeria. And that was like, wow. Now my next thing is I need to go there. I haven't been there yet. I need to go there because in the middle of all this, what happened? It's been COVID. So I can't do the travel, mm -hmm. but I will. And, um, but when I, and that's, that was more recent. The very first DNA um, story that I got back was from ancestry.com. And when I saw, you know, of course that's more full and you get to see kind of the whole pie chart, like who you are. Every single one of those things is a story or multiple stories of people who somehow ended up coming together. And that is the most profound thing. And I think, you know, once you know who you are, you know, nobody can take that from you. True. Nobody True. can take that from you. Yeah. And so there's a there's a, a plumb line that that anchors you to the earth. Mm. It anchors you when you know who you are. Mm. Even if what you find is disconcerting, even if what you find is troubling or sorrowful or tragic, you know. Yes. And that the greatest tragedy for us African-Americans has been in the not knowing. Right, right. Yes. We that, lack an anchor because of it. Absolutely, absolutely. I, I can attest to that. And that's something that I know even mm -hmm. from my own just journey and whatnot, it's just right, mm -hmm. it's, just, it's just knowing. It's just like, I just, I just wanna know. No, just wanna know, exactly. So, you know, so for me, this journey has been a journey of knowing. It's been a journey of truth seeking. Um, and now I'm in the process of truth telling, right? And I've done a lot of listening. And so ultimately what fortune calls for is a process of truth telling reparation in order for us to repair what race broke in the world and healing and healing that requires forgiveness actually, release um, for the things that were done that can never be undone for the things that were broken that can never be repaired. Communities like Elmwood that were broken up and just will not come back. Um, if, we, if we hold on to that mess, mm -hmm. if we hold on to it, we are the ones who suffer. You know, white folk ain't suffering from that. Right. We suffer from that. Yeah. So forgiveness is actually for our benefit. It cuts the tie that binds the oppressed to the oppressor, as Bishop Archbishop Desmond Tutu said in his book, um, No Future Without Forgiveness. So I, I, you know, the original plan for Fortune was to um, have the last chapter be on restitution. So it was going to be truth telling, reparation, restitution. 
And as I was writing the reparation chapter, I just started realizing restitution and reparation are really two of the same. It's it's kind of like opposite sides of the same coin. They're both about repair, right? Um, they're both about restoring or repairing what was broken. So why don't we just put these two things together? Because I started realizing, what is the actual goal? Hmm. I mean, what's the actual goal? Really, what's the goal? If the goal is simply for us to have power, then yeah, end it with restitution. But if the goal is that vision that Dr. King painted for us of the beloved community, Hmm. well, then it can't just end with restitution because we still need to heal. We can, we can have restitution and reparation and still be some broken people. Yeah. We can have restitution and reparation and still um, have ongoing power struggles in America because we haven't, um, we haven't, we haven't released white people, people of European descent from those things that they can never repay. Hmm. Um, and, and so we continue the cycle of domination when we get power, right? And is that what we really want? No, because that domination begets Ooh. domination. You know, Ooh. there's no getting peace from domination. Peace. So how do we get peace? How do we get flourishing? Not from war. Flourishing has to come from truth-telling, reparation, and forgiveness. So this is good. I love, I love hanging around you, even just even for this hour. This is this is great because uh, <laughs> ever since I've known you, you had a a sense of of optimism and hope for lack of better words that you know Mm -hmm. and and i'm just i'm curious Mm because i've always been a glasses half full kind of guy and so i'm always Mm -hmm. just i'm always suspect of most things um most actions and and, you know Mm -hmm. what i'm saying Uh, Mm -hmm. i tend to believe history like it's like okay it's like what has been done what's what's been going on in the past okay that may be a predictive of what's going on now but Mm -hmm. how i what is just what are some of the engines that drive you? Obviously, I know family. You've just been sharing about this this history, this rich, yeah. complex history. But yeah. it's like with with I think about just like where we're at and like again, and I'm looking, I'm I'm putting on my 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 scholar hat here and like in just in terms of the believability of I, I teach a course on media literacy, and so what I try to help students understand is like who owns these outlets of mm-hmm. of media, right? And it, you know, yeah. it boils down to four or five major companies, uh, yeah. most of which are in cahoots with the previous administration, current administration. So it's like, if you have people who say, oh, I'm gonna stop eating whatever, that's great, but let's not make these declarative statements that now all of a sudden you <laughs> extra super woke and you know, like, <laughs> like look, we're, we're still, yeah. it, as long as we're in the society, right? It's like, somebody's gotta keep the lights on, somebody's gotta buy, the microphones and the mixers, which mm-hmm. on some level, right, there's a level of blood that's mixed in with with that, right? Somebody showed yeah. the analogy that said no one just becomes a billionaire. Um, and they right. were like, if you lived from 1600 to current and you made like $5,000 a day, they did the math, right? You can do the math on that. And it comes out right. to close to $230 million. Like, that's it's still not i mean yeah maybe a quarter of a billion but it's still not a billion we think about these folks who own this much money like how do you see things going and and what keeps you moving and motivated because i'll be honest i mean sometimes i just feel like man why are we dealing with some of these same things and and that i was dealing with in 92 right during the la uprisings and stuff it's like why are we still 
having these same conversations about Dr. King and, you know, then you got the alt-right using Dr. King and quoting Dr. Mm. King. Like, what mm. in the hell? I know, I know. That was like, what? <laughs> I know Dr. <laughs> King went, like his eyebrow was raised in the grave right, with that. Exactly. Um, so here's the thing. Um, I, I don't, I don't have, I don't, I don't have a crystal ball. Sure. I can't yeah. look into the future. Yeah. Um, I know what's possible. Okay. And so my work is about moving us toward what's possible and helping us to see what's possible and, and our, our parts in making that possibility become reality. And so the thing that literally fires me up and makes me, gives me any measure of hope about our future is knowing that all of the heinous oppression that our ancestors went through, all of the laws that were passed, all of the policies that were created that hemmed us in and controlled and confined us, all of that were decisions that were made at particular decision points that had, that, that then reverberated throughout the next generations and history and changed the world or didn't. And so the decision in 1619 to accept those 20 and odd Angolan um, men and men in particular who were on the white lion and brought into the shores, onto the shores of Hampton, Virginia, which is and point, which is point comfort. And, um, uh, and, and when they brought them in and said, Hey, we have slaves for you. We have enslaved people for you. Well, they said slaves, um, you know, where do you want us to put them? They could have said in that moment, no, we're not into that. Send them back. Bring them back. Send them back to where they came from. Because the thing is that they didn't ask for those enslaved people. That was a pirated mm -hmm. warship. I mean, the pirate, the warship that pirated um, a Dutch slave ship that was bound for Mexico that took those Angolan men um, off of that ship and brought them for the first time to um, North America, the North American territory and, and continent. And they could have said wow. then, no, we're not into that, send them back. But they didn't. They decided to exploit their labor. They could have said, you know what? Um, um, in, in 1662, um, when they came up against the reality that uh, raping enslaved black women was now confusing their slaveocracy, um, and they, they were now getting challenged in court by these mixed race children who said, hey, you know, English law says that because my dad is, is, um, is uh, English, I cannot be enslaved. That means I'm English because the, the status of the citizenship status of the child goes through the father, according to English law. They could have said, um, you know, after all these these court cases came and, and these these mixed race kids began to win their cases, they could have said, you know what, we're going to phase out slavery. That's kind of true. We do have a lot of mixed race kids here. We're going to phase this out. They could have just abolished it. They could have phased it out. They could have said, you know what, we're going to they could have done any measure, but they didn't. What they did was they switched where the status of, of citizenship comes from. It mm. no longer then came through the father. Now it comes through the mother. Why? Because they did not want to lose one penny of their free money. Mm -hmm. um, and when in Maryland and two years later, when the legislature realized they had quote a problem um, with their, their white women coming over indentured servants and in, from Ireland or Scotland or um, England, indentured servants coming over and falling in love like Maudlin did with enslaved black men um, and having children by them. They could have said, um, you know what? That's, you know, you know, 
um, we're gonna we're gonna phase out this, but they didn't. What they did was they clamped down and they they made it um, uh, punitive for any white woman to marry and have children with an enslaved black man. They said any white woman who marries an enslaved black man shall herself be enslaved mm. and and her children in perpetuity, right? So that those two fateful words in perpetuity, both in Virginia and in Maryland create the black slave class, right? So um, they could have at any point, and, and when we became a nation in 1776, we decided to go to war in the Revolutionary War. We become a nation in the first Congress in 1787. They had a choice. They could have abolished slavery right there. They could have mm-hmm. even been like, you know, justice light. They could have phased out slavery incrementally, as some people were saying that they needed to do. But they said no. And instead, they declared people of African descent by law to be three-fifths of a human being. And that was a compromise because the North didn't want to count them at all. (laughs) Not at all, because what would that mean? It would mean gerrymandering. The first gerrymander was our Congress. When they counted people of African descent as three-fifths of a human being in a context where they had no vote, and it was only to to up the amount of representation of white slave-holding, slave-owning uh, senators and 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 Congress people, right? So that's why they did that. The very first gerrymander. So they had a choice then. That we had a we've had choices. We had a choice in in 1877 when we made a choice to make a deal. The North made a deal with the South. We will pull our troops out of the South if you play nice with us after you know Civil War, and and so we pulled our troops out and. Uh, more than about 2,000 elected black officials that have been elected in the nine years since the end of the Civil War, 2,000 were kicked out of Congress mm-hmm. over the next 20 years. Sorry, that's my oh. my alarm going off. Oh, okay. So, you know, over the next 20 years, 2,000 people were kicked out of Congress, black people, till finally you only had one left to, at the turn of the century, one. Um, and... That was a choice that was made. So my discovery, my aha moment, um, that choices have been made. Our world is not ordained by God to be this way. We made this world Mm. through choices, which Mm. means that if it's human made, it can be human unmade. We can make different choices. Mm. We can repent. Repentance is possible because we are human. Mm. Because we are human. So my work and the work of really all of us who are working toward a just world is to become human again. For all of us to embrace simply being human, white people, and fully being human everybody else Mm. because to be fully human is to be called by God to exercise stewardship of the world to be simply human white folk is to not war with God for supremacy to not war with God through the crushing of the image of God on earth through through policy and governance so I have hope because I know that the arc of the universe 
You know, the moral arc of the universe is long, but it does bend toward justice. And if we don't get it in this administration, if we don't get voting rights now, if if Trump comes back into power, if 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 the worst case scenario, I know that God still is, and God is eternal, and God will ultimately have the last say. Hmm. Wow. I'm with that. I'm with that. I think uh, this is. I think for me, it's like it's 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 asking that because that was being. I mean, I know we're coming up on time and whatnot, but I, you know, I, you know, theologically, I think is 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 one of the questions, right? Because I hear mm-hmm. right in 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 the back, it's like saying, it's like, well, then why do we? Why should we stay here if there's this much history and this much disarray? You know, um, you know, is is and granted you have to have privilege and, 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 and access and, and resources to do it, but to move right to another country. I mean, you know, it's a great it, question. You know what I'm saying? That's a, yeah, it's a great question. Can I just say very quickly? Yes, please. I know we are coming up on our time, but um, I want to say there's not a place on earth that hasn't been touched by this. So the question I've come to is where yeah. are you going to go? Yeah. Well, that's <laughs> where are you right. Gonna go? Right. No, absolutely. where are you going to go? And, um, this is this is the land we have connection to this land. Um, we are not um, for those of us who uh, who are not you know tied officially to a native nation or tribe. You cannot claim that, and um, and so you cannot say that you are indigenous to this land. Um, but yet we do have history on this land. We have relationship now on this land and and we have relationship um, with those who have been oppressed and those who have oppressed. And so relationships have been broken. And I don't think we're going to find shalom in the world. We're not going to find that until we actually do the work of repentance and truth telling and restoration and reparation that brings these relationships back into right relationship. Hmm. Um, you can run from it, but it doesn't end the problem. It doesn't end the problem. I'm oh man, well no, and I'm, and I'm and see, and that's the thing. It's like I feel like there's a sense of individual sense of okay, let's repent. There's even some sense of corporate that you know, in in certain in in spaces mm-hmm. and stuff like that. I think I what I struggle with the most is. How does that then happen on a on a grander level? You know what I'm saying? Because yeah. it's like, and that for me yeah. is what I struggle with theologically. Is like mm-hmm. a God that is supposed to love and care. Um, where the hell is he? Or and, and or she? And I mean, I don't believe God is a he. Um, but uh, you know, it's like, where is that? This is in that course leads me down different roads into quantum theory and in 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 aliens <laughs> and everything. But well, no, but <laughs> aliens. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me just say this, please. That at different points in our history, we've always looked up and said, "Where is God?" I can imagine that Leah looked up after being raped for the seventh time in a day um, as a breeder, as one who was forced to breed money for her master. I could imagine that she looked up and said, where is God? I can imagine that, in fact, I know to be the case in the middle of the Shoah, that people looked up and said, where is God? I know that um, in the case of um, of women's subjugation in America, um, I know, you know, as 
um, as, as the women who were in, imprisoned, um, who refused to eat and went on hunger strike in the prison because they were fighting for the vote, they might have looked up and said, where is God? We're sitting here in jail. Paul might have looked up and said, where is God? As he's been thrown in jail and suffered all those different things. But that doesn't, because we say, where is God, does not mean there is no God. It means we feel far from God. But you see, we can see the presence of God in history when God limits the darkness. And that happens on the very first page of the Bible. We see who God is and what God does on the first page of the Bible. When the spirit of God hovers over the darkness, over the deep, mm -hmm. the chaos. Mm -hmm. um, and, and then God says, let there be light. God, through that declaration, cuts the darkness, limits the darkness. And in fact, the very writers of that text were in the process of having their darkness limited. They were on the out, exiting Babylon after after being enslaved for 70 years. So I that's the thing. I know in the middle of Trump, in the middle of his administration, we reached the point where children were dying in cages. And I said to myself, we, it looks like, where are you, God? But God is the one who limits darkness and God mustered an army of mm. voters and kicked his ass out. <laughs> kicked his ass out. And yes, he might finagle his way back in, though I don't think so. I think I think God has has lawyers who are going after him and are going to get him. They're going to get him. They're going to get him. And because God don't like mess. God is about the light. And God also um, uh, uses the darkness and God used that darkness to organize that army that came up against him. And that army is still here, that army of people who are having the hard conversations, who are doing the truth seeking and the truth listening and the truth telling right now so that we don't get back into that place the next time. I'm with that. I'm with that. I think... Again, this is great. This is why I love having conversations with you because I'm like, man, I, because I'm, I'm ready to be done with Democrats and Republicans. Like, I'm, I'm sick of the Democrats because they don't, I get it. I understand. I, they don't do really do anything for Black folk until it's voting time. You know what I'm saying? And so mm -hmm. it's just like, man, we gave Biden. Of course, I never liked Biden mm -hmm. to begin with, or Kamala. I was in California when she got, you know, when she was elected the first round and stuff like that. And mm -hmm. I'm, I'm happy for the success and the optics of it. Right? It's like the history mm -hmm. of a Black woman, Black Asian mm -hmm. woman, you know. Being being in this position office that's amazing um mm -hmm. uh, but but i'm also just like wait a minute so i come back to is it the elite when i think about the amount of silos that are being built that are being mm -hmm. that are being uh, bought out right now the old you know nuclear silos that are being bought out by the very elites the one percent you know bezos is building a you know a penis mm -hmm. rocket to go into space and taking shatner <laughs> with him and stuff and he got no shame being like i just want to thank all you motherfuckers like oh yeah i thank yeah. the amazon workers and i'm like yeah. god damn like he's he's not even holding it back anymore so yeah. I so I asked myself like are we just gonna go Blade Runner like full Blade Runner and like, corporations <laughs> run everything around hunting for water like <laughs> right right exactly oh my gosh well let me let me let me respond to that please, and I know that we could, we could talk forever and we might actually talk forever but this is good though I love it it is good I know it really is I mean let me just say I think that um, I think that vilifying or um, or sainting 
any party is a mistake. Okay. That it's really not about the party. It's about a new way of being together in the world because both parties were formed and fashioned in the context of human hierarchy in the context of policies and laws and ways of thinking about how we are, how we be in the world together in an era that has spanned 500 years, an era of white domination. But we are literally coming into a new age, a new era of the, of the world, all over the world. Um, globally, people of color already make up the majority world. Mm -hmm. We mm -hmm. are the majority world. We mm -hmm. are not the, the minority. People of European descent are the minority world. But in America, for the very first time, in less than 20 years, we are going to have a majority people of color nation. And what that means, eventually, it will be the case that the majority of leaders in the nation will also be people of color. So we literally are facing a shift in ages. Mm -hmm. It's not just which party. It is the fact that we have to figure out a new way of being together in the world. And that is the reason, that is the reason that we have had the cray cray that is coming out of the GOP. Mm. That is the yeah. reason. That's oh, yeah. it. Yeah. It is yeah. this Democrat, this yeah. demogra um, demographic yeah. shift. It's the reason why we have voter suppression and nullification right. that is being proposed. Right. It's the reason why we have the gerrymandering because yeah. they, it's not actually about democracy for them. It never has been. <laughs> no, it's no. been about white male power. Yeah. So as yeah. Dr. King said in 1967, and where do we go from here? He said those segregationists would rather have an American form of fascism than democracy if democracy um, required equality. And so because equality is not then that's not the purpose of this game. White male domination is the purpose of this game called America that they have been playing for 500 years. But that game is about to shift because the players on the board are about to shift. And that's why we have the everything that's all the, all the cray cray, the shenanigans that are going on right now. But I'm telling you that we will, there will be more of us than there, there are of them. And there are still people of European descent who actually can and have repented. Hmm. So it's not it's not even black and people of color against white. It's those who want um, who want the beloved community against those who want domination of white men. That's what it is. Those who want beloved community versus those who are who are fighting for the domination of white men over everybody else. That's who it is. It's not even people of color against white men because there are white men who want the beloved community. And so it is those people who I'm calling out, who I'm saying it is time, time. Mm -hmm. It is past time for you to step up, for you to change, for you to repent openly, um, categorically. And let that mean reparation. Let that mean mm. restitution. Mm. Let that mean letting yourself be forgiven. Ooh. Because when yeah. you let yourself be forgiven, white man, that means you will let yourself be released. You are no longer needed then in order for people of color to get what they need because they're going to go to God and God's going to give it to them. And the only job you have at that point is to not get in God's way. Oof.
right, yeah, I'm with that. <laughs> I'm with that. I'm with that 300% right there, shoot. That's what I'm talking about. Oh, my gosh. Well, what can, um, what can a guy like me like do? Like, what can the ordinary Joes? I got, I'm kicked off Twitters. I ain't even on Twitter anymore. I'm barely, no. I don't have no platform. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It's like nobody reads my books and stuff. And so what can the ordinary person do on the day-to-day, you know what I'm saying? I mean, it's like the the blue-collar cat that's just working at the yeah. at the place and stuff. It's like I'm on the yeah. west side of Chicago, so it's like I know a lot of these cats around these neighborhoods, right? Right. So cats, you know, can't make it all the way. They can't even make it out to Springfield, you know, the, the capital right. you know, of, of the state, right. let alone right. go out to D.C. and places like this where mm-hmm. that holds such power. What, what, would you, what would you recommend? I recommend several things. Number one, read the, read the book, read the book. Um, (laughs) And and I I really do read it, read it because in it, you're going to see my process and you're also going to see me pointing the way toward repair. How do we, how do we um, engage in the process of repair? Second, you need to actually engage in the process of truth seeking. So what, what is the truth that you need to seek? The first truth you need to seek is the truth of who you really are, Mm. your own Mm. family story. Seek your own family story because as you get that story, that's a piece of history nobody can challenge. Nobody can take from you because you know your ancestors lived it. They lived it. So no matter what other history somebody tries to spin at you in order to get you to do X, Y, Z, you know your family history. It gives you an anchor. The second thing that you can do or the third thing you can do is that you need to actually then get connected to the to the coalitions and the, the networks that are pushing for reparation and for restitution. You need to be connected with the, with the movement for Black Lives. That's something you can actually go online, see what they're doing, show up in your city and um, and engage. There are places that are um, engaging in local areas. If it's not moving for Black Lives, it's local community um, action um, do, um, agencies. It's it's um, local coalitions that are actually trying to move justice on your corner to get um, to get businesses into your community, to get jobs for your community. Um, this all happens as we engage in the civic process. Hope comes with action. It doesn't come the other way around. Action doesn't just come from hope. You can, you need to take action even if you only have a mustard seed of hope. Mm. Let that mustard seed lead mm. you to move your ass. <laughs> move your ass out of your seat and get into action in your local community. And okay. finally- the last thing you need to do is you need to actually then begin to reconcile with the reality of the brokenness in your own family, in your own, the, 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 the intergenerational brokenness and how that has impacted you because it impacts your, your own choices. It impacts the way you show up in the world and it impacts the, the capacity for us to actually reach the beloved community because we are all connected as you remain broken. So all of us remain broken. So heal thyself, get yourself, mm. get yourself some, some, counseling, get yourself some somatic therapy, get yourself um, some prayer, get yourself some, some, some spiritual work that can actually help to anchor you in these changing, shifting times. That's why I always love talking with you, Lisa. You uh, <laughs> you bring it and put things in some good perspective. This is great. You're right. I could talk all day long. I appreciate your perspective. Appreciate the book. <laughs> it's fortune. I get it. Is it out now? 
It comes out February 8th. February 8th. So, Got it. Yeah. Okay. All right. So I will make sure that these are all in the show notes as always. Where can folks find you um, and, you know, contact you, bring you out, do that speaking engagement, give you uh, half a million, you know, to do a little 20-minute talk and everything, you know. <laughs> half a million. Well, let me tell you, if anybody wants to give me half a million to have me come speak, um, here's where you can reach me. So you can, anybody, anybody um, can follow me online for sure on social media, um, Twitter and Instagram at Lisa S. Harper on Facebook, Lisa Sharon Harper dot page. You can like that page. Please do. Um, you can also find, um, you can follow the work around the book at fortunebook.us, fortunebook.us. And also make sure that you sign up um, or, or, you know, engage in Black Fortune Month, which is going to take the whole hmm. month of February. Yes, hmm. my, my brother, the whole month of February to read the book, to engage in events that are happening every week online. Um, and then also to show up and do something in the last day of February, the last okay. day of Black Fortune Month okay. is going to be a day of action. And actually also going forward into March 1st, we're going to be calling on Congress to pass HR 40 and TRHT. So HR 40 being the the um, uh, the bill that is calling for a study to see what reparations would require and TRHT, Truth, Racial Healing and Transformation Commission, which would have a truth commission and also call for reparations. And so we want both of them to be pushed for by everybody and their grandmother. So So join us there. That's a way you can take action. Love it. I love it. I love it. I will put all these in the show notes, whitehodgepodcast.com, click on Profane Faith. All those notes and links will be in there. Uh, Lisa, I love the work that you're doing. Always love talking with you. Every single time I walk away, I'm like, oh my gosh. And I would, I just want to say too, I don't even remember that time that we were, we, I don't even remember what the gathering was. We were all at Sunshine Ra's house. It was, uh, it was, oh, wow, yeah. You were all there. I don't even remember. And you were just like, oh, you. You got an amazing radio voice. That was yes. one of the genesis for me to get a podcast going. So thank you really? very much for that. Oh my that, gosh. So. Worlds, I now claim, I claim that. That's I'm right. I'm responsible. That's I'm right. I'm responsible for, uh, for Daniel White Hodges' right. video presence. <laughs> absolutely. Right, well, thank you, brother. Thank oh, you, brother. absolutely. Appreciate you.